You're listening to the Derms and Conditions Podcast. So welcome to Derms and Conditions. This is a live performance of Derms and Conditions. We have backed by popular demand. We did this in Winter Clinical in, uh, meeting in Hawaii. Uh, and it was with April Armstrong and David Cohen. And they they were so well received that we brought them back again. I have a funny feeling they might be a fixture, but they're certainly back for the second year. Now a message from our advertiser, Bristol Myers Squibb. At last, so tick two, which is Ducravacitinib, a new FDA-approved treatment option. To learn more, visit www.sotic2hcp.com. That's spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com. So, April, I'm going to ask you to start off. What what we do here is we look at highlights from the meeting and uh, April and David throughout the meeting they listen to different presentations and write down things that they really think are important and clinically relevant to you as dermatologists so April what struck your fancy yeah there are several areas that uh, really caught my attention and uh, one thing is uh, we have our new approval for parigo nodularis for example uh, with dupilumab uh, for patients with or without atopy so that's very important um, there's also the discussion of the nemolizumab data phase three data which looked great for parigo nodularis as well so i think those would be uh, wonderful options for our patients with this very difficult to treat d- disease David, anything that uh, hit you as being clinically relevant and important? Well, you know, I, I want to point out, having come to this meeting almost since the beginning, I cannot remember uh, a period of time where we've packed so much new information into so, so short a period of time, right? We have new approvals for atopic dermatitis. We have two JAK inhibitors. We have an IL-13 inhibitor. We have two new topicals in psoriasis. We got a new topical in atopic dermatitis, all in the last year. And it, it's, it's really amazing that we're able to cover that all here. So I, I think those highlights are, 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 are the big ones for me and, and trying to sort of drink from the fire hose of information coming in that is so entirely clinically relevant. This is not theoretical stuff. This is going live in your office on Monday. Right. You know. What really hits me is that two disease states that I've always found to be very difficult and almost before I walk in the room, I feel badly because I never really thought I was going to be able to do much to help people, was vitiligo and patients that had rapidly progressive or severe alopecia areata because it was so difficult to get these patients better. But we now have FDA-approved treatments, treatments that have established efficacy, they have their benefits versus risks and certainly don't work in everyone, but it's great to have those advances. Right? Yeah, and, and, and Samal Desai and Pearl Grimes covered it. I, you know, I think they pretty much called us a historic time for vitiligo, right? So uh, I, I remember them highlighting, of course, topical ruxolitinib, which has been a major breakthrough twice daily, up to 10% of body surface area, having real material and, and clinically relevant improvement, particularly on areas like head and neck, with some caution about expectations in April areas, right? But I think another thing I took home from them was 
Don't forget about the other therapies that we've been using for a while, the topical corticosteroids, the topical tacrolimus, and of course, phototherapy, all as adjunctive now to a brand new FDA-approved topical and medicine. Keeping in mind how long it might take for patients to get better, this is something that's a matter of months as opposed to a matter of weeks. Exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So April, let's come back to you. I'm sure you saw more things that you liked in the program. Yes, I, I saw a lot of things that I liked in the program. I think, um, and Jim, you alluded to earlier regarding hair, right? Hair disorders and alopecia areata. We really dove deeply on the use of baricitinib, two milligram, how one starts with two milligram, then go to four milligram if necessary. But also very importantly, for those patients who may be on tofacitinib already, how do you transition them from tofacitinib to berry, um, which, which is very interesting. So perhaps for those patients who are getting results on TOFA, but to now transition to an FDA-approved therapy when we want to do it slowly so they don't get disappointed. Now, April, you've heard of psoriasis, right? You're familiar with psoriasis? <laughs> so can you give us some information on new advances in psoriasis? Yes, very exciting um, new developments in psoriasis, first in the development of non-steroidal medications. So we've seen the approval of Tepinarov, which is a non-steroidal in psoriasis, as well as then following that, just a few uh, months later, uh, the approval also of a topical roflumalast. And what was shown is that now we have topical therapies that are non-steroidal, much stronger in efficacy than the ones that we had before, right? Yeah, and, and I feel uh, comfortable saying that because even though we don't have head-to-head -head data, we, we've observed the results with the previous treatments that were non-steroidal compared to what we saw in these studies. And I feel very comfortable saying that they work faster and better than the previous ones. Well, absolutely. Yeah, Jim, sorry, David, we, you know, you're, you're right. We don't have head-to-heads, but what we do have with our prior therapies are, are uh, clinical trials that harms with the steroid, with adjunctive therapy, and the differences between adding those non-steroidals on were very marginal. These are demonstrative results compared to placebo and deltas between placebo and active that we had not seen before with topical therapies. Like bo both of those therapies um, that a April mentioned really have notable, um, no notable efficacy once daily and in, in, in cream formats that patients could use you know, on regular body sites, but they could put it on their face. They could put it in intertriginous areas and it's gonna work. And, and if, if any of the things that you're, you hear about at the meeting, those are the ones that are gonna be right out of the gate on Monday morning you can go live on because of their ease of use. And if patients continue to use them, uh, doesn't, you're not concerned about how long they're using it or if they're putting it on a different area in terms of side effects. One of the things that was interesting to me was when we think about oral genus kinase inhibitors, right? The advances in atopic dermatitis and some other areas, uh, alopecia areata. But one place where they've lagged behind until recently is in psoriasis, right? And some were even evaluated and were not approved for psoriasis. So it was interesting that when we saw Decravacitinib get FDA approval, I think everybody was anticipating that the box warnings were going to be there. And it turned out that they're not. So what's behind that in your mind, April, in terms of that difference? 
I think the difference is data. I think uh, a decision was made that's evidence-based, and what we see is that ducravacitinib has a very unique mechanism of action where it binds to the allosteric. It's an allosteric binding, so it so really binds to distinct site from where other JAK inhibitors that we have may bind. And clinically, what we see is a profile, an efficacy profile that's superior to a premolas in this head-to-head -head evaluation, and also uh, demonstrate a safety profile where we have um, really laboratory parameters um, similar to a premolas as well as placebo. And I think this is a time, I think that's why the community is very excited. I think FDA recognized these features of the medication and being the once daily medication, an oral medication that needed no titration uh, that patients can take with or without food, um, it really offers uh, a, a significant new option in oral realm for our psoriasis patients. And being metabolized by several different enzymes, we're not concerned about drug-drug interactions. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, I think April got exactly right. And, and I don't think it would have been a surprise to anyone in this room or at that conference when there was welling anticipation on what the label was going to look like, right? I mean, the, the, the JAX as a class are spectacularly efficacious, right? But they require patient selection and monitoring. And the question would be, would a TIC2 orally available medicine look like a JAK label or not? And I think this was a perfect situation of really understanding the mechanism of the target that, the co that, that any company would look for and reverse engineering to specifically go after your target whilst not going after off-target areas. And it worked. The, the question would be, did, would it deliver? And, and it did deliver. And we're looking at efficacies, you know, almost 2x of what we were used to orally. Well, it had to you know, go from the basic science that suggested this to turning out in the clinical studies, which is which is really what it did. And, so and I shall, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, and I shall say, you know, um, I think that that is a significant development for our other oral medications, such as a Premolas, for example. We also saw discussion of uh, of the data in in the uh, adolescent, right, pediatric populations, right. and and so I think that's interesting. That you know, that's that's great that we have more options for oral options for our younger patients as well. Well, it's nice to have different options. We know what a, a premolas does and what it doesn't do. And now we have another option to consider that we're learning about. And I, th I think it's great. I think it is important to know that patients have to get a baseline TB test or it's recommended in the label they do and have periodic lipids tested. But you don't need a complete blood cell count. You know, every patient has to get liver enzymes or whatever. I'm going to take a break for a moment and we'll get back to our discussion. Let's pause for a message from our advertiser, Bristol-Myers Squibb, who invites you to learn more about Sotictu, which is Ducravacitinib, a new FDA-approved treatment option, by visiting www.sotictuhcp.com. I'll spell it for you. www.sotyktuhcp.com. Dot com. So, David, was there anything else in the meeting that well, stuck yeah, out to you? A couple of, couple of things. Uh, number one, I, we've spoken about some of them, but for the first time ever, we're seeing new drugs come on the market with 
active comparators. We never had that before, right? We have JAK inhibitors for atopic dermatitis with a comparator to the foundational biologic therapy, dupilumab. When did we ever get that kind of information before? And I really like the format you guys put together, putting uh, Simal Desai and, and Ali Galan in a boxing match, going after each other, trying to figure out which drugs should you use for atopic dermatitis, JAK inhibitors or biologic drugs? Well, I'm gonna tell you that was my idea and it was supposed to be me, but I got boxed out by Samal. So what are you going to do? Well, guy's going to be president of the AAD. What are you going to do? So April, any thoughts from you? Yes. Um, so a few things. One is when we're looking at hydranida separativa, I think the big splash there is that we have data from secukinumab's pivotal studies, which showed that uh, Q2-week dosing of secukinumab worked well for patients with HS. Um, the Q4-week data, they, they show positive results in one of the two studies. So I think that is quite notable. Um, I also love Dr. Uh, Iluski, Bonnie Iluski's talk um, in terms of minoxidil, right? Oral minoxidil, that's the that's talk of the town. And she brought her own experience where, you know, you take the 2.5 milligram oral tablet, you cut it in quarters, give it a quarter of them, which is 0.625 to start in women. And uh, you use half, 1.25 to start in men and then to see how they may do with that starting dose and then decide whether to adjust that accordingly. So, David, we're waiting with bated breath to hear <laughs> about the allergen of the year. I know that's why most people come to full clinical. It's probably the only reason for some of them. And, and I will say, for the last three years prior, we had some allergens of the year that were a little difficult to digest or to immediately take into clinic. But the 2023 allergen of the year was lanolin. It's going to be lanolin, right? And I think the only people who know that right now are the people who attended full clinical because it just kind of broke. And so lanolin is derived from sheep, sheep sebum, right? And it's incredibly pervasive in personal care products. And the truth is lanolin feels wonderful when it goes on irritated skin. It's a reason why it's been used for a really long time. Uh, the issue is, if we take a look at lanolin allergic patients, you tend to find a disproportionate number of them that have chylitis, lip dermatitis, dermatitis in their groin in the anal area, and that's the time where the clinician takes a pause and say, we have some recalcitrant disease. It's not responding to some topical steroids. What may be fueling this, and it may be sometimes as simple as, let's pull back the lanolin product, let's continue our therapies as we're doing before, and see if we can make some headway. So I, I think it was a wonderful allergen of the year, and immediately actionable. What about the difference between lanolin and lanolin alcohol? Yeah, pretty much. I think that's important. Yeah, I know. So I think anytime you see on a um, package lanolin, lanolin alcohol, Amercol, wool wax, wool alcohol, you're going to have to assume that's going to be lanolin based. The question on the degree of refinement is going to be so difficult clinically that I think you're just going to wind up avoiding that one for now, right? But this is one of those allergens where you don't need to immediately go to patch testing on it. 
Now, one other caveat, sometimes lanolin on intact skin, you know, you're checking it on the antecubital fossa and nothing's happening, and you're making an assumption they're not allergic to it. That may be a little bit of a paradox. Lanolin can take a while to come on and a while to go away, and it tends to bother irritated skin. So one of the things I noticed before we wrap up is none of the highlights that either of you mentioned came from any of my presentations. You know? <laughs> so, you know, it's just, I guess just, I'll have to do better next year. So I want well, to thank I both of you for uh, helping out with this. I think it's great. Uh, great pearls for everyone. And so we'll end with now a message from our advertiser. At last, so tick two, which is Ducravacipnib, now approved as a treatment option by the Food and Drug Administration. Bristol-Myers Squibb invites you to learn more by visiting www.sotik2hcp.com, spelled www.sotyktuhcp.com. And for all of you out there, okay, we're going to be coming around, and maybe you'll be lucky enough to get a Derms and Conditions hat, okay, which we started. In April, I know you'll sport this extremely well. It's a Derms and Conditions shirt. Oh, thank right. you very much. Okay. Why don't you stand up and sport it? Okay. Okay. And David, the same for you. Thank you. And Jim, your talks are highlights. Oh, my talks are highlights. Thank you, David. You made up for it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Derms and Conditions. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at podcasts at fred.health. And most importantly, if you like this episode, subscribe to the Derms and Conditions podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Thanks for joining us.